There are currently no millennials in the United States Senate. In 2016, Jason Kander tried to become the first. At age 35, the Army veteran and former Missouri State Representative ran against Republican Roy Blunt, and he made what might have been the best political ad of the election season. You see Kander, who served a tour in Afghanistan, standing in front of a table with a disassembled automatic rifle, a weapon of war. He begins introducing himself while putting the rifle together. I'm Jason Kander, and Senator Blunt has been attacking me on guns. Well, in the Army, I learned how to use and respect my rifle. Did I mention he does this while blindfolded? It's impressive, as was his showing in the election. Now, he didn't win, but he finished less than three percentage points behind Blunt, an incumbent with more than four decades of political experience. So what's the next step for one of the most promising Democrats to show up in a while? To run against Blunt, Kander left his job as Missouri's top elections official, but he didn't leave the work. He started a new group called Let America Vote, targeting voter suppression and race-based redistricting efforts led by Republicans. I caught up with Kander when he came here to Los Angeles last week. A lot of folks who aren't from your part of the country know you from that ad. You're blindfolded, you're putting a rifle together, all while burning Senator Roy Blunt to a crisp. <laughs> I also believe in background checks so that terrorists can't get their hands on one of these. I approve this message because I'd like to see Senator Blunt do this. So you're telling, you know, a story about basically that it's about gun control, but it's really contradicting a lot of like sort of accepted common conventional wisdom about what Democrats are supposed to talk about. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us first a little bit about what that ad, you know, how that ad came to you and how many takes you did? <laughs> well, what that ad means to me, like to me, the theme of the ad is this is what I believe and I know what I'm talking about. To me, that's the point of the ad. And and the way it came about is I have an F rating from the NRA. The NRA was making that very well known. My <laughs> opponent in the race making that very well known. And so I sort of in passing said to my team, you know, I'm pretty sure I can put a rifle together a lot faster than the other guy. And and it sort of went from there. And uh, I got it on the on the first take, but I uh, the, the hard part, by the way, is not what I did with my hands. I mean, that's muscle memory. I had put a rifle together in the dark because you're cleaning your weapon in the woods, that kind of thing, plenty. It was obviously with the blindfold, there's no teleprompter. So I had to, I had to memorize the script <laughs> and I had to make sure to do it when you're not saying a word, when, when the weapon's making a lot of noise, that kind of thing. So, right. uh, so I, I got it on the first take. I don't know which take they used. You do a bunch because of, I don't know, stuff I don't know about, like lighting and stuff like that. Right, but there wasn't a take where like the blindfold didn't come off your head or like uh, yeah. drop the rifle or... No, I never dropped it. <laughs> flood, I, flood the line. <laughs> if, I'd have, if I'd have dropped it, I'd have done a bunch of push-ups probably just out of habit. <laughs> um, so I want to get to what happened in November. Obviously, you were trying to become the first millennial elected to the U.S. Senate and you came within percentage points of doing it. Mm-hmm. How are you dealing with that defeat and what have you learned from it? Well... I don't think about it a lot, to be honest. I mean, mm. it's sort of like the election happened. I'm really proud of the campaign we ran. I mean, uh, the top of the ticket lost in my state by, by 19. We lost by less than three. There's nothing I would do differently. I'm, I'm very proud of what we did. And so after the election, I, I don't think I had time to think about me. Or, or you know, To me, it was like, okay, Donald Trump's going to be president. The Republicans control Congress. My objective was, like a lot of people, it's, boy, there's a lot of work to be done. And so... Um, I guess if you ask it that way, the way I'm dealing with it is I'm, I'm, it's like grab an oar, you know, start paddling and that's what I'm doing. And so that's let America vote. Mm -hmm. So 
you're the former secretary of state in Missouri. And so it made sense that elections matter to you. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how you went from that role and how that's growing into this role? Sure. So after the election, uh, when President Trump said, when he told what I argue is possibly the biggest lie that a sitting president has ever told when he said that three to five million illegal voters voted in the election. I mean, have you checked Twitter this morning? <laughs> it's like an evergreen question. It pretty much is. <laughs> so when, when that happened, I think a lot of people heard a very, uh, or a deeply insecure man covering for the fact that he lost the, the popular vote by about that amount, right? And I think that that's also true. But as somebody who was elected secretary of state, was in charge of elections in Missouri, and has seen up close and personal the voter suppression playbook from a, a supermajority Republican legislature, I saw something different. Uh, I saw somebody who recognized that their path to re-election uh, and to having people in their party win elections is to have fewer people vote. And if he can get that belief out there in the ether that there's widespread voter fraud when there's not, it gets a lot easier to pass these laws that make it a lot harder to vote. And and then when you combine that with the fact that when we have pushed back on this in the past successfully, it's usually been in court. And now you have Jeff Sessions in charge of the Department of Justice literally switching sides in these court cases. And you have President Trump appointing the judges. It became very apparent to me really quickly that we needed to expand beyond, the legal strategy is still very important, but we needed to expand beyond it and we needed to create political consequences for making it harder to vote, which had never been done. And so that's what Let America Vote is doing. Okay, so what do you see as the role going forward into the midterms? I mean, how is, you are you organizing people on the ground, people mm -hmm. who are out in the streets, angry, marching, what have you? And how is, how is that translating into efforts to get voter turnout up? Right, so let me give you a couple of examples of what we're doing. And, and it starts with the premise of, you know, right now, or not even right now, but like three months ago before we got going, um, a Republican, I mean, like, we should just talk about it as what it is, right? It's Republicans are doing this, Democrats not. So, so I mean, yeah, let's than, not let's not pretend like Democrats all of a sudden have a bunch of voter suppression. Bills. Right. Like, rather than be polite about it, I'm just going to be real. And so what Republicans have been doing the last 15 years or so is increasingly supporting these bills or these other efforts to make it harder to vote because there's no political consequence for doing so. If you're if you're a moderate Republican and you take a position that's anti-labor, you take a position that's anti-choice, you know that there's going to be a force that will stand against you in your next election. There's no big voter constituency that's going to go out there and, and, and make you uh, and create political pain for doing that. So that's what we're doing. And so I'll give you a couple of examples. For instance, in Virginia, where they have this bill that uh, makes it so that if you want to vote absentee, you have to send in a photocopy of your driver's license with your ballot. You know, because we all have access to a Xerox machine at our house. And that's in the Constitution, too, right? right of course, yeah. I mean, uh, Thomas Jefferson was like, you know, make sure it, you put it down face first. And it, it, it's ridiculous. Right. And so what we're doing is, is we're messaging there. We're, we're targeting folks who, uh, who are potential votes when it comes to... Um, you know, sustaining or overriding the governor's veto of that bill. And and we're making it very plain to people that this is about making it harder for you to vote, not just certain folks, like everybody to vote. And then in uh, Georgia right now, I mean, there's an actual debate. You know, you've got this, uh, you know, race going on in the 6th District there, John Ossoff. They're trying to make it, like the Secretary of State there has tried to make it where if you register to vote, uh, they're not going to let you vote. I mean, and at this point, it's not it's not like usual where they're just targeting African-Americans or they're just figuring if you're registering to vote right now, it's probably because you're unhappy with what's going on and we don't want you to vote. Right. And I just can't imagine being in the political process and wanting to be there alone and like, no, no, you, you can't come in. Uh, but that's what they're doing. So we are 
uh, actively messaging on issues like those and making it more politically painful for people who make those decisions, which makes them less likely to make those decisions. When we talk about the issue of voter fraud, we have to get to this election integrity commission that was established by President Trump yesterday, May 11th, mm-hmm. with an executive order to, quote, study the registration and voting processes used in federal elections. Now, Vice President Pence is the chair and the co-chair is a guy named Chris Kobach, mm-hmm. who is the Kansas Secretary of State. What do you see happening there? I refer to this as the uh, Voter Suppression Committee to reelect the president. Uh, that's what it is. It's So for about 15 years, the Republican Party has been pushing this fiction that there's widespread voter fraud, uh, it, I mean, when in fact, you are more likely to be struck by lightning as an American than you are to, to commit voter impersonation fraud. But they've been pushing this, and they've been pushing it for the purpose they claim of solving the you know, non-existent problem of, of, of voter fraud. Well, the truth is, is the problem they're trying to solve is there are certain groups of Americans who are really unlikely to vote Republican. Black folks are, they don't vote Republican very often. You know? No, no. Hispanic folks don't vote Republican uh, anywhere near as often as the Republicans would, would like them to. And uh, or, even Asian Americans. Right. I mean, there's just certain groups of folks who, uh, you know, lower income folks, uh, women, you know, uh, this legislation that they're trying to create fertile ground for by changing public opinion is targeted at solving a very different problem, which is there are certain folks who really don't usually vote Republican. So if they can't vote, problem solved. That's what this is about, too. And Chris Kobach is the Secretary of State in Kansas. I'm not sure if that's his part-time job because he runs around the country causing all sorts of trouble. Uh, It's supposed to be his full-time job. That's what taxpayers are paying him to do. Uh, And he's sort of the expert at telling this lie and spending taxpayer dollars on doing it. Now, I know you've run into this cat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're old buddies. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about, first of all, you know, what what his deal is? and, And also what your interaction was like. His deal is that, uh, I don't know, I can't explain his deal, but I'll tell you about the interaction. Uh, That might be too tough. Yeah, I just, uh, anyway, um, when I was first elected Secretary of State, I was elected in 2012. So um, very beginning of 2013, I went to the National Association of Secretaries of State Conference uh, in D.C. Um, And so it's really traditionally been a very nonpartisan professional organization. And and now you have a guy like Kobach there at this time, and he's got sort of this little band of, of newly elected Tea Party uh, secretaries. And they're trying to make take a nonpartisan brand like the National Association of Secretaries of State and use it to push a really partisan, really pretty gross agenda, which is a voter suppression agenda. And it was, frankly, there were there were Republican secretaries who who really didn't like that at all because of the partisan nature of it. That's not what they came to NAS, to the association for. Uh, But so he's trying to push this. And at that time, it was after the 2012 election. So President Obama was wanting to push forward some legislation to, you know, decrease wait times for voting, things like that. And they didn't like that because they didn't like more people voting. So he came out with this argument that we need to protect states' rights on elections and, and we should just have this resolution that's signed off on in a bipartisan way by the organization to say that we don't want any of this federal legislation. And I sort of just stood up and said, that that's a blatantly partisan thing you're trying to do. We get into this back and forth and we ended up in sort of this thing where he was saying that I was making something partisan that wasn't and I just said, let's talk about what we're really talking about. One party... Uh, wants to um, keep the federal government out of elections, and the other party wants to let black people vote. And he he did not take too well to that comment. <laughs> I mean, it, it's so plain to me. I mean, Republican voter suppression or even gen- gerrymandering, to me, stems from this desire 
for them not to just hold on to power, but it's also kind of a certain laziness. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it, it seems like they're more comfortable not having to bother to sell their ideas to African-American audiences, to Latino audiences, to Hispanic audiences, to Asian-American audiences. And instead, they draft legislation to impede access to the polls and draw up new districts that somehow exclude us. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems kind of, you know, the, the, the antithesis of public service. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, trying to get people you want uh, uh, ostensibly to get people involved in their own government. And this is the opposite of that. It's it's very cynical. And and what it also is, is just when we think about it plainly, imagine it. it's like like a court case. Like, instead of trying to persuade the jury, they're just trying to figure out who doesn't agree with them and just make sure they're not on the jury. And and it's that doesn't speak well to the power of their argument. Uh, they've made the determination that their argument only appeals to a certain group of people. So they want to make sure those are the people who get to do uh, the decision making. Now, I know with President Trump, you know, this whole argument, this whole circus around voter fraud started with him trying to essentially prove that he won the election in the way that he wants to have won the election, uh, saying that I won the popular vote if you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally. You know, he can't prove that. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a lie. I right. Mean, it, I just want to make sure we always call it that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was getting there, Jason. I'm sure you were. I apologize. <laughs> I just... I couldn't wait. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. You got to kill the president a liar first, and I'm a little upset about that. Um, but I think that, you know, with the Republican Party, they bought into, you know, what Trump is selling. I just want to get an idea from you. How, what are you doing? What are your strategies for getting through the Trump era just from a, you know, sort of mental health standpoint? <laughs> sure. I think that's actually the right way to ask it, too, from a mental health standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. Because, like, my friends who uh, work jobs that aren't engaged with politics or, or, or anything, you know, that are, you know, pretty normal job. They, I think those are my friends who, in a lot of ways, from a mental health perspective, have the hardest time because by five o'clock, you've seen all the news that's happened during the day. You haven't been able to do anything to be engaged toward it. And by five o'clock, they're ready to run through a wall. And so I have a lot of conversations about this. And, And for me, it's the ability to be engaged every single day. So I talk a lot about Everybody has a platform. So whether you have a hundred friends on Facebook, or whether you have, you know, whether you're on TV or whatever, at every level, everybody has a platform, and we all have a responsibility, given what's going on, to uh, speak using that platform as much as we can and to engage. So whether that's calling members of Congress, marching, you know, getting involved uh, locally, getting involved with Let America Vote, or whether it is, you know, if all you can get done during the day is you see the news and you want to make sure your 100 friends on Facebook know what you think about it, that is a really important part of this. Because if you don't do that, if if because a lot of people will say to me, they'll say, when is he going to be gone? Or when what is this? And people who are thinking that way and are waiting, for those folks, I worry that every day when they wake up and Trump is still president, every day is November 9th. Right. And, and that's not a good headspace to be in. And it just happens to be the case that the best thing you can do to feel better is to be actively engaged in in pushing back. And that also happens to be the best thing that you can do for the country right now. Yeah, I'm really worried about apathy because I feel like, you know, to get people to care about voter suppression, you have to get them to care about voting, period. And a lot of people, especially I remember reading an article uh, shortly after the election about voters in Milwaukee, black voters in Milwaukee, who just felt like, you know, not obviously that the people were the same, you know, Clinton and Trump Mm -hmm. were the same, but they just didn't feel like either of them would do anything to serve their Mm -hmm. communities. I mean, you're in Kansas City. I'm sure a lot of people feel like that there. What do you do to reach those folks to get them to care about your topic, voter suppression, gerrymandering, when they don't feel like voting works at all? Mm-hmm. Well, two things here. I think the first is that I'm a big believer in you make your argument to everybody. 
uh, and and you do it in a way that is real and very candid. Because even if people don't agree with you, they uh, appreciate that you're telling them what you believe and they know that you care about them. That's, that's I think, a very important part of it that sometimes gets missed is that people will be okay with you saying something they're not totally on board with as long as they know that you believe it because you want to help them. And, and that means you've got you to care about everybody. So that's the first part. It, you got to go there, right? So like, for instance, Ferguson's in my state. I was Secretary of State uh, you know, when that, when, when all of this started. And it was shocking to me how many people in politics in the state felt like they couldn't go there because they didn't have answers. Mm -hmm. And my attitude, I'm a former intelligence officer. My attitude is how are you going to figure out any answers if you don't go there and ask some questions? Right. right? And so that was my response. I, I went there and, and I spent more time there than any other community in my state for my official duties as secretary of state. And just from a perspective of doing my job, I think that mattered. And I think people recognize that I did. Now, the second part to this is uh, I actually am very hopeful about where people are right now because I'm getting invited to give speeches to groups all around the country. And I go and, and I am amazed and just really uh, heartened by how many people will say to me, you know, prior to uh, January 20th, you know, I voted most of the time, not all the time, but that's all I'd ever done. And they'll say, and since then, there hasn't a day gone by that I haven't been engaged and in, in, engaged in some kind of activism. So folks recognize the stakes. And there's also this sort of element out there of people who, are, and I'm not saying this is what you were saying, because it's not, but people who are mm -hmm. sort of like, there's some level of anger at folks who maybe weren't engaged or didn't vote or, or whatever. Yeah. And, no, that's very real. Yeah. And I, I, what I say to that is, that that is a huge waste of time. If you're angry at somebody for not being engaged before, I feel like that's the wrong reaction. The right reaction is, thank you for being here. Uh, we have a role for you to play. Mm -hmm. And because and, this is about our country. Yeah. What more do Democrats as a party need to do? And what didn't they do right mm -hmm. or enough of in 2016, do you think? Well, it goes back to what I was saying about making our argument and doing it unapologetically and just being, being authentic and real uh, with it. And so for me, I... Democrats, and this is across the board, candidates, I think, have had this problem for a long time. And one of the reasons I think we were successful is we didn't fall into this trap. But we have a tendency sometimes to feel like because we know our policies are intended to help everybody, we have a tendency to uh, forget to sort of make that clear, right? And so we'll, a good example is... Um, I like to use college loans as an example here. Okay. Super important uh, policy area. Uh, but when we have talked about it, a lot of the time it's talked about as an issue that affects millennials or an issue that affects current or recent or future students. But it is so much more than that. And, and so we need to talk about it and what it is we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. As I've been around the country and particularly around my own state, I've been to a lot of small towns, for instance, where the college debt crisis has everything to do with why those towns are hurting. Because somebody goes off to school, uh, let's say in my state, let's say they live in Warrensburg, and they go off to school in Kansas City or in St. Louis, and they've racked up $100,000 in student debt. They, more often than not, would really like to go home and get a job and, and, and work in the community where they grew up and you know work to better that community, raise their kids there. Right. But... Because it's a smaller town and there's not a job there with wages that are going to help them pay down that debt, they stay in the bigger city or go to an even bigger one. And that has a lot to do with what's happening. So my point that I'm getting to is when we talk about something like student loans, what we should be talking about is the fact that uh, every American wants the their kids to do better than, than we have done. But mm -hmm. if we can get that, the other thing we'd really like is for our kids to be able to come home and raise their kids in the community where we raise them. 
What we what unites all of us, no matter where you live in the country, is we want uh, our family to be safe. We want the next generation of our family to be more successful than us, and we would like our family to be close together. That's what I'm talking. That's yeah. talk about what we're really trying to do, not the way we're doing it. That that makes a big difference. Indeed. And, Indeed. and by the way, that is not a triangulation. That's not a changing in any way of our progressive values. It's not a moderation. That is exactly the same policy. It's just be real clear about why it is we want to do this. Now, going forward, though, I mean, there's a lot of protesters, you know, as we've been talking about, there's a lot of anger out there, a lot of frustration, a lot of confusion. How does that you see? How do you see that getting translated into turnout, into action in 2018 specifically? Because midterms, as we know, are not times when people usually show up at the polls. I mean, unfortunately, you know, the turnout rates are pretty low. How do we make sure that this keeps going? Is it, are we just going to depend upon outrage at Trump to make sure that this does well, turn into something? I'm really heartened by how many uh, groups that are really productive and really, you know, have picked out a lane, uh, everything from indivisible to, you know, there's all sorts of, there's let America vote. And what why that is really exciting to me is that that didn't start in Washington. And if you look at the history of this country, the most effective movements are generally not the ones that come from the top down and generally don't start in Washington. And so usually when this question comes up, it's sort of a, what should the party be doing? What, and, and to me, that's a little bit of the wrong way into it because the right way into it is where things are going. This level of energy, you know, at the county level, at the city level, at the, I mean, people are, and, and when they, when there's not a group that they can plug into, they, they're having their friends over to their house once a month to talk about what they can do and the phone mm. calls to make. So to me, it is not about how do we harness this? It's about how do we make sure that the folks who have started all this stay in the lead and that and and that we allow them to be leaders in it. So I'm really I'm really optimistic actually. No, I, and I share that optimism in one regard in, in that there's a lot of people now running for office. Right. You see a lot of especially a lot of women who are signing mm -hmm. up, you know, with the women's march saying I'm going to run for office. Thousands of people saying that they're going to actually start taking a more active role in public service in that way. Now I want to ask you about how you got into it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you enlisted in the National Guard after 9/11. You're mm -hmm. 20 years old. You know, then you're in ROTC in law school in Georgetown, and you ended up being the youngest elected state official in the country. Mm -hmm. And so why, after your tour of duty in Afghanistan, did you find yourself pulled toward public service? Well, I had been sort of thinking about it for a while, but I think what really cemented my view of politics was was being overseas and really and being in the Army. It was you know, recognizing... The, the stakes and and being for the first time in my life on the receiving end of decisions that were made by people in public office that had a direct impact on my life and often a negative impact not having the uh, the equipment that we needed I mean I spent a lot of time in, in vehicles without armor uh, and Man. and and so you know for me as somebody who grew up comfortably I mean there was no there was nobody in public office who was when I was growing up making a decision that was taking food off my family's table like so that was the first time for me that I'd really been on the receiving end of that and so then when I came home uh, and there was an open uh, state house seat and I'd been thinking about that a little before I left but it really solidified it for me it was I knew exactly why I was doing it uh, and then when I was when I was in the state house for instance and it was always amazing to me when a, a vote would come up and some somebody would say, well, I wish I could vote the way you are, but I just can't because of whatever political thing. And I never understood that because I thought about, you know, kids who were 19, 20 years old who I saw make really, really hard and scary decisions by breakfast. 
And so, uh, and that's really guided me uh, through through all of this. It's astonishing to me that there's no senators who were born after 1977. Why is it important that there be younger people in the Senate? Why is it important that there be millennials in the Senate? Well, Senate or anything else. Just, I mean, because to me, there's a lot of ways to lead. And it doesn't have to be elected office necessarily, but there's a lot of ways to lead. And I really feel strongly that this is just a time when there's a deep need for a next generation of leadership. I mean, our generation is is looking at uh, a generation that that has gotten themselves crossed up in the same arguments for so long. And I'm not saying that therefore those arguments aren't valuable. They are. But I think our our generation is is a lot more focused on progress than anything else. And we tend to look at it as, okay, can we just stop pretending that, I mean, I mean just so many of these arguments are so artificial, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that that's just a really valuable perspective. And part of it, honestly, is just math. I mean, it's just time. Yeah. Like a, a lot of the decisions that are being made are going to affect us and our kids. And we need to be in there in the room making those decisions. One of the things I s- observed in this election is that it really moved past the hope and change. Not to say that hope and change were a bad thing in 2008. Uh, certainly the country seemed like they needed mm-hmm. to have a you know, reinstallation of belief in the mm-hmm. political system and that it could actually work. But I feel like this was a, an election that was much more focused on results and people wanting to make sure that they're electing people who can do something for them and who will do something for them. Now, obviously, the people voting for Trump may be looking for something different. We can get into that. But as far as like younger people getting involved, like they want to see stuff done. Mm-hmm. How is that possible when you see so much gridlock in Washington and so many people who, frankly, don't even seem to know how to legislate? I think that really gets to the frustration that exists for this generation, which is that uh, we... I mean, between social media and everything else, all the ways that we're connected, we're really used to the idea that when something needs to get done, we we get done. And also, uh, we are a generation that I think has gotten a bad rap. This whole me generation, this idea that it's a selfish entitlement, I I reject that stuff is just, well, anyway, I I don't agree with that stuff. (laughs) And, And because I think about the fact that so many of the people that I saw sign up to serve knowing that they were probably gonna have to go overseas to a dangerous place, so many of them are millennials. I see so many folks, whether they served or not, who it's somehow cast as a negative thing when they want the company that signs their paycheck to reflect positively on their personal idea of who they are. That's not a bad thing. That's about making the country and their community better. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. That's not selfish. That's, that's patriotism is what it is. And so part of it, I think, is we, we have a very different view of ourselves than, than maybe some others do. And, and so when we look at all that gridlock, it's not just gridlock in Congress. It's not just gridlock in Washington generally. We've come to a place that is gridlock in our national conversation. This thing where people go on and they just say the same stuff over and over again. And, and that, I think, is what we're tired of because we have so much access to one another through technology and everything else that we're very much used to people being real. And so when folks go on TV and they're basically acting, and if they were good actors, they'd, they'd be acting and paid for it for a living, but they're not good actors. And so when we see bad acting, it doesn't look like bad acting. It looks weird. And we are turned off by it. And, I, and that's, I'm not talking about anybody in particular. That's just politics right no, now. No, I mean, you, you know, this generation, I feel like, has seen incredible bullshit detectors. And, you know, they <laughs> yeah, just... <laughs> I'm with you. Now, you know, I'm not trying to imply anything, but you are officially old enough to run for president now, Jason. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying. <laughs> what kind of aspirations do you have? 
You know, right now, my focus is honestly on, we talked about Let America Vote, it's, it's on making sure that uh, we still hold elections in this country. And, mm -hmm. and uh, if I'm successful in that, maybe I'll be in one one day. But uh, it's we're just in a time where everybody needs to jump in and do everything they can. Chippy Candor. Thank you, man. Thank you. That was my conversation with Jason Kander, founder of Let America Vote and former Secretary of State of Missouri. I'm Jamil Smith, and this is The Stakes. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovic of the MTV Podcast Network. You can subscribe to this and all our other shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts.